This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. We are not experts in any of the uh, subjects we discuss, so please enjoy accordingly. And as always, this episode will contain spoilers for the books that we're covering. Welcome to SWAT People. I'm Scooter. I'm Sunny. And today we are covering the second half of the Throne of Glass series as part of our series of Living Moss. Woof. Uh, this one, I think this one for me and maybe for you too, dragged a little only because, uh, I've done a re-listen. This is probably my third time doing these books. I am not a Sarah J. Moss fangirl, uh, which speaking of, we're going to have a conversation about fans here in a minute. Um, uh, but anyways, I'm not a huge Sarah J. Moss fan. I enjoy her work, but, uh, a seven book series and the last one has, how many chapters? 112 or 121? 120, I think, not counting two, two, two prologues. prologues and an epilogue. <laughs> it's a bit of a beast. I believe it's over a thousand pages. It's it's pretty big. Although we um, did it in audiobook form, so yeah, I think in, the audiobook at standard speed is like 33 hours. Yeah, is. That's just the last one. That's not even the other three. It's a lot. Um, so you and I were talking about this, about how we kind of like having a little time at the beginning to talk about things that are not directly related to whatever we're covering that day. Yes. And I have gossip from the book talk world. I'm excited about this. I love gossip and I love internet cultures that have infighting. So after we're finished with uh, the Sarah J. Moss books, just sort of like a peek behind the curtain, we're going to do a hockey romance. Hold on. Hold on. What is it that we refer to that? When we get behind the curtain. Is that what we call that? It's flashing them our penis. Gooder, I'm not going to say that. Flash you our genitalia. Please. No, please stop. I hate it. If we might reveal our podcast business to you, and then Sonny, please resume. Yes. Peek behind the curtain, if you will. Um, we're going to do a hockey romance after we're done with Sarah J. Moss stuff because um, I need a break from fantasy. Uh, not that I don't love fantasy, but, you know, you got to change things up. Variety being the spice of life. But anyways, hockey book talk has uh, blown up. Uh, there's an article in Rolling Stone covering this. Um, an author who's pretty popular. I don't think we'll be doing one of her books, uh, but she, because I haven't read any of them, but she's wildly popular. She has a doctorate and everything, and uh, so she's kind of like considered one of the the intellectual smut authors. Uh, her name is, I think it's Emily. Uh, her last name is Rath. We're just going to call her Dr. Rath. Uh, so Dr. Rath even came out and was like, hey, stop doing this. But the drama is there was this book talker who uh, basically sexually harassed uh, a member of the hockey team called the Krakens. Uh, yes. Well, I believe it's just Kraken singular, the Seattle Kraken. Seattle Kraken. Uh, yeah, so you're a sports person, so you, you're going to know these people more than I will. Uh, I think his name was Alex Winterman. 
Uh, yeah, I pulled up the article just so I, we can reference it if we need to. Oh, so it was a weird situation in which this girl, woman, let's not minimize who she is and like her own accountability. So this girl would make these TikToks about um, how much she she liked the Kraken, how much she liked Winterman, um, and at some and they got pretty sexually explicit. I believe at some point she said she prays every night to, to be turned into ice so he could skate over her. Just like some real some real out of pocket stuff. Uh, <laughs> and initially the Seattle. The Seattle Kraken, uh, their PR team, were were sort of on board with this. She went to a game. They gave her a jersey. They followed her back on TikTok. And it just became a whole thing. And, like, it, it seemed as though the team was having fun with it. Um, and then Winterman's wife go, <laughs> comes out and is like, Hey, you're sexually harassing my husband and it's going too far. And he seconds this like, yeah, it's been too much. And this isn't the first time this has happened where a fan group has a fan group of women has sexualized a man so much that they're basically just uncomfortable in public. And so I I just kind of I know you have some strong thoughts on fandom and how fans engage with the media that they consume and how that translates to real life people personally in my boat i think if you are harassing anyone uh because of a fandom you need to take a step back and evaluate why you're making that choice because they don't deserve that but yeah my so my disagreements with fandom come down to more personal taste than anything i think they're doing wrong so i won't get into that stuff but i think it's probably a line that we can all agree should be a line when the like sort of shipping and fantasizing and sexualization of fictional characters you now gets grafted onto real life players and what started out as sort of like a, the fans just kind of picked the kraken because they're a newish team so they tend to have a lot of young players and they were making like fan cams of the particular sexy players warming up and then the Kraken PR team, like you said, kind of jumped in on it. And then Yeah, I will admit then, yeah. that has come across my TikTok, some of those dance some of those warm up routines. Well, and it's one of those things I think where, you know, it's the give an inch take a mile thing. People took that as just consent. Like that was just a green flag go for a lot of people and it ramped up. And you forget that like you know, they're looking at engagement and numbers and things like that, but the individual players also have social media and they're also seeing the thousands of comments, some of which are like too much. And then I think that it sort of came to a head when um, his wife, and not even complained, she wasn't just like, uh, I hate that they're doing this. She's just like, it's kind of funny, but some of the people are too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, we see this, uh, the the parallel that I'm drawing is everybody calling Pedro Pascal daddy. Like, he joked around with it for a little while, and now the poor man is sexually harassed all the time. Oh, yeah, he got on, like, the red carpet of the Emmys, I think. 
he was asked to read thirst tweets like while he's on the red carpet going into like maybe win awards and stuff and he's just like no this isn't the place for that like has had to actually say people say no in interviews to the stuff yeah and and this is a situation to me where if men were doing this to a woman we would all collectively be horrified and rightly so we should be because you know uh unwanted sexual advances are often very threatening and because we view sort of women as harmless we let them get away with this kind of thing uh and so i think in light of this because i feel very bad for the people who are being harassed just in general uh i vote that our psa today gets moved uh to the beginning of the podcast can we do that well, I'll tell you what we can do is we can have two PSA segments, and we can do an okay. early P- a pre a pre PSA. Okay, so my pre PSA is: if you are a fan of something, it is okay to love that thing. It is wonderful to love that thing and be supportive. But at the end of the day, we have to respect the creators of that work. We have to respect people who are adjacent to it, because remember, Alex Winterman. Uh, he is not the character or a model in that book, uh, in any of the books. Uh, he's just a hot hockey player. So even in that kind of sphere of somewhat adjacent to the thing you are a fan of, please do not harass, sexually harass or otherwise, uh, anyone related to that. Be cool about it. Love your, uh, love your fandom within the confines of appropriate spaces and do it in appropriate ways. Please do not sexually harass people. Absolutely. I would second all of that. Okay. I also, I'm going to add in here too, if you're a part of fandom, do not confuse legitimate criticism of a media for, uh, complaining about not being allowed to do stuff so in this instance part of what the blow up was with the back and forth so they were told basically they had started crossing a line with the sexualization but the blow up backwards was that when they sort of put out there that like okay they're going to stop doing some of this stuff a lot of the book talkers like were like oh you used us to get clout and now you're abandoning this community and you're dropping us as fans or whatever and that's not the case they're expressing a boundary this is not a situation of you know, them taking advantage of a community. This is a reasonable boundary for them to ask for. It's not like, I don't know, by comparison, like the Supernatural fandom, where they have legitimate criticisms about why that character does not have a lot of queer representation despite doing a lot of queer baiting. That is a situation where it's not the fandom being unreasonable and asking for representation. This is people being unreasonable about asking real life people to pretend to be characters they fantasize about. Yeah. I don't buy the clout argument either because, uh, hockey's existed for a long time. It is wildly popular in many areas of the world. Uh, they're not getting clout from romance novels. Romance novels are writing about hockey players because some people already find hockey players hot. And then people who are not from areas or not around hockey players, uh, they're going, oh, wait, hockey players maybe are hot. Exactly. Yeah. 
They're not getting clout. You're you're jumping on a train. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. I'm willing to move forward. Uh, today we're gonna. Do you want to do the synopses first, and then uh, I will go through your notes. Maybe these books are long. I'm wondering if. Rather than doing just the whole synopses and knocking them out, I think we maybe just will set up some. Here, let me give me one second. Vamp for me. My boss did call me vampy the other day, and I think it was because I had gotten a haircut. I say the other day, it was like two months ago. I'd gotten a haircut and I got bangs, and I don't like having bangs without doing bold eye makeup because I feel like. Uh, I look like I've got a mullet if I don't do my eye makeup. So I had that and I had, uh, I got some really dark red lipstick that is not in season right now, but I don't care because I love it. Um, and I put all that on and I, got, I went into the office and my boss goes, you're looking real vampy. And, Van- and I have a very professional job. My boss just uh, sometimes blurts stuff out that's hilarious. Uh, and maybe not entirely appropriate, but uh, is always well-intentioned. I think vampy is often a look you go for, though. I mean, you. I think you're approaching it from an aspect of gothy, a little professional, but often the end result, I think, could be described as vampy. Oh, I, it's definitely my aesthetic. But, like, it was, it was just funny because she normally would not comment on my makeup, but she wouldn't comment on that because she is, she does have that level of professionalism where she's not going to talk about somebody's body. But I walked in and she goes, Oh, you're vampy today. I think you often are vampy. So anyway, I, I, I sent the screenshot of my notes. They're not as funny this time. I, I had a couple of serious points I wanted to talk about. And honestly, most of them are things I want to talk about. Although two of them are jokes. The ones about tower of dawn. Um, so I think we'll we'll go one book at a time, um, and we'll start off on a high note. What I th- I think we would both agree is probably the best book in the series. It's book number four. I do not agree with that, but it is my second favorite in the series. What's your favorite? Five. Really? Empire of Storms? Yeah, five drags, but Empire of Storms is my favorite because it has Lorcan in the lead. It does have Lorcan and Elite. Lorcan and Elite. And it has more good Manon shit. That's fair. So, I, but I do love four because four is, four gives me that twisty, turny heist feel that I love in a story. I think what I would say about four then that I think we could both agree on, it has the least low notes. Yes, I would say that's true. There, the end of five drags. The end of five, like the latter half of five really starts to slow down and it really starts to build up into the everything slowing down that I think plagues the the end of the series. It also has like parts, it has more parts I don't enjoy. Like there's only like a couple of scenes in, uh, is four air of fire? No, three is air of fire. Four is queen of shadows. Queen of shadows. The only parts of Queen of Shadows I really don't enjoy are the weird arguments that KL and Aiden, not Aiden, KL and Aelin get into when they reunite. Because like, KL is yeah. being a brat, and Aelin is mad at KL, but not for the reasons he's bratting about. But that's the thing is, uh, I, that's probably why I like Empire of Storms more is because KL's not in it. 
That's fair. <laughs> you have a very specific and intense uh, bias against a single character. Bias, justified hatred, whatever. Uh, okay. So, but no, I do love four. It's got all the heist stuff. It's sort of the the end of Era Fire is the real turning point in the series uh, for sort of a like just philosophically but four is when the the things that she decides start getting put into action and that becomes interesting yes absolutely so a a brief summary of four um aelin returns to otterlin uh gets the gang back together they free adian before his execution uh then they scheme to kill arab and hommel and get the Amulet of Orinth and the Word Key back, and then they scheme to free Dorian, and they do that successfully and manage to kill the king and blow up the glass castle and uh, put Dorian on the throne of Otterland. So book four introduces Lysandra. Who is a breath of fresh air. Fucking love oh Lysandra. Because Aelin f- needs a friend who's a lady. Yes. Well, And the first few chapters of... Queen of Shadows is like it's Kale and Kale and Aelin meeting up, and like neither one is telling the other the truth, even though they're both working towards the same goal. Kale is still like on the fence about who he's siding with. Aelin blames him for Dorian getting captured, as if Kale could have done anything about that. Yeah, like she's mad at him for that, which is arguably the one thing Kale didn't do wrong. <laughs> And she's not really upset about the fact that he is still, like, opposed to her taking power and returning to her throne, and that he's seemingly bigoted against the use of magic. Like, doesn't seem to have problems with that. Is mostly just annoyed that, like, he fled a battle he had no part in taking in and letting Dorian get captured. And it's one of those things where it's like, I, I understand being mad at Kale. I don't understand why you're mad at Kale if these are the reasons given. And Kale is just being a fucking butt. And then in comes Lysandra. And Lysandra's just like, hey, Aelin, here's the truth about everything. And I'm laying it all out there. Will you please help me? And Aelin's just like, I'm not going to tell you anything because we keep secrets and you keep secrets. And she's like, I'm done keeping secrets. I need your help. Please, here's just the honest truth. And it, like, it so takes the wind out of Aelin's sails and makes her change direction. It's just that first Lysandra chapter just, ugh. She's just, I said it before, a breath of fresh air. No, I love Lysandra. Lysandra is somebody that Aelin knew growing up because she was, uh, own, like, she, they have indentured servitude programs. Um, and who she's indentured to is, like, the head of the the sex workers guild. Um, she, is, she is a prostitute. Uh, and so she... <laughs> She's super fun because they teach the girls, they send the girls over to the, well, not just girls, but they send the apprentices over to the Assassin's Guild to learn to defend themselves, which if you're a sex worker, you should probably, you know, have a bit of working knowledge on how to defend yourself. Uh, So that's a good thing, right? But they hate each other. Aelin has to earn a lot of money to pay off her indenture. uh, And when she does and she finally pays Arab and Hamel back, he spends all of it 
uh, buying Lysandra's virginity because he's creepy and vindictive. Yes. The, and so Aelin and Lysandra have sort of parallel upbringings in that, like, the Courtesans Guild and the Assassin's Guild are tied hand in hand so much so that, like, uh, Arabin is very much has them on a leash, if you will, and they are very, like, tied together. And so they were basically both captured at the exact same time when magic went out. And Aelin was taken to the Assassin's Guild, Lysandra to the Courtesans Guild. And were raised at the exact same time and had this constant rivalry. Yeah. And uh, that's really interesting because Aelin goes back and Rowan takes a while to follow her. And my favorite thing about that is they've been having these conversations. They've been keeping secrets. They're about to kill Arab and Hamel. And Rowan shows up and just sniffs Lysandra and is like, oh, you're a shapeshifter. And so we find that out. And that makes Lysandra probably one of the more powerful characters in the in the books. She's probably... I think the book would have us believe that Rowan is more powerful than Lysandra, but based on just everything they do, she's probably the third most powerful with... I would say Dorian is the first and Aelin is the second. Yeah. Well, in terms of how useful her power is... Because Rowan's useful on a battlefield. She's useful in all sorts of situations. He arguably is more useful on a battlefield than Rowan. He is like has a lot of magic at his disposal and has a lot of training and stuff. But like regularly, all of their plans are dependent on Lysandra springing a trap that the rest of them capitalize on. Like all yeah. of their plans start with, well, Lysandra's going to shift into this and take out the first couple ships, and then we have our opening. And like they, they would be so lost without her. Yeah. I love Lysandra. Um, I thought for Lysandra, because the reason Lysandra hates Arab and Hamel is he killed her lover. Um, yes. Who was in the Assassin's Guild. Um, so, and then up until, until Arabin dies, Lysandra is the person he is having sex with regularly. Uh, she's sharing his bed, which is why Lysandra gets to kill him. And I'm so excited about it. Oh, and it's so incredibly brutal. She slits his throat just deep enough that he drowns in his own blood. Yes. Oh, beautiful. And here's the one thing I'll give Kay all this. Kale helped set it up where she's not the she's not suspected because he brings his boots and stomps to the window in him. In he, the basic, blood. he basically shows up and then leaves all the evidence behind that it was him who did it. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason to suspect that Kale would have done it. So like when they're like, oh well, it was a man's boots and like a man's handprints and stuff everywhere, but like no one would have thought it would be Kale. So that's how they basically get away with it. Yeah, uh, and this is part of the sort of clever little trick. Because I like the twisty, turny, clever stuff. Um, she set it up where she has broken into the bank, replaced Arab and Hamel's will, and so now Aelin is the sole beneficiary of the entire Assassin's Guild and all of his estates. So when he's dead, it helps her fund an army. Yes. To defeat Erewhon. Yes, exactly. So I think that that probably covers everything important about 
Queen of Shadows? Uh, no. At the end of the glass, so M- Manon and Dorian kind of do a thing where they go back and forth. Manon knows he's still alive inside. She has a life debt to Aelin, so she tells Aelin that uh, she leaves messages proving that, uh, telling Aelin that uh, Dorian's still alive inside the Volg prince thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the end of the the book, we learn a few important things. One, uh, Dorian gets free from the collar. Two, Kaol becomes disabled. Mm-hmm. Takes a blast of magic or something. I can't remember now. So much. It's the the Vogue magic basically leaves an imprint on him on his spine. Because yeah. Like, the Vogue magic is they essentially like go into your memories and torture you. Yeah. Memories. They're and parasitic. He, he holds on so long in order to buy Aelin time that the king's magic leaves a physical imprint on his spine, which causes him to be paralyzed. Yeah. It, we'll, we'll get into the details of that in Tower of Dawn as they try to heal it. And then um, the other thing we learn is that the king tried to eliminate magic because he was trying to slow down the Vogue. The king is really good. He's just been fighting the Vogue his entire uh, reign. Yes. He, like early on when he took the throne, Parrington found, um, like him him and Parrington were best friends. Parrington found. Parrington's lands, Morath, are where they put the tomb that they locked Erewhon in, and Parrington found it. And so those two sort of started exploring the catacombs together and accidentally freed Erewhon, not knowing. Oh, and we're introduced to Elide, who is the Lady of Paranth. She's disabled, and she's technically got witch blood, so... Her mother, I believe, was like half iron teeth. Yeah. So, okay, continue. Because Parrington's going to play into Elide's storyline. Yes, so parent, yeah, but basically as kids, the king and Parenton found the stuff under the castle, got the word key, freed Erewhon, and then were immediately possessed. Parenton was possessed by Erewhon, the king was possessed by a different prince. Really, Parenton's been ruling for... Yeah. Yes, and the, um, but he, the king reveals that he was able to do a handful of things uh, in his brief times he had control so he got control long enough to order the construction of the wordstone towers which cut off access to magic because the vog need magic users to be uh, hosts for them and so he was trying to slow down their ability to bring more vog into the world and he also took control long enough to he attacked Aelin at that feast to try to get her to kill him mm-hmm when she was like a child. Yeah. It's weird. The whole storyline with that. It is very weird. It comes back up in even more detail in Kingdom of Ash. Yeah, in a weird way. Okay. So that, and then we meet a lead who forms an alliance with, um, the witches. Manon. Yeah. Um, and she's sort of being kept prisoner. Uh, the other thing that happens with the lead storyline, she's sort of trapped at Morath, and she keeps trying to find a way to get away. Um, 
The other person that's important there is Caltaine Rampier, who was in the first book, uh, Parrington's little pet that he was clearly controlling. She now has a word key implanted in her body. Um, and it's sort of corrupted her. She gives a word key to a lead and then blows up Morath. A big chunk of it, yeah. Yeah, a big chunk of it. And Manon and the other Blackbeaks help her get out. And so then Alid is trying to bring this to Selena Sardothian, who she does not know is Aelin Galathinius. And that's sort of where we pick up with Alid in the fifth book. Yes, and now that... So Alid's parents were executed. Her mother died to help Aelin escape, and her father was executed by her uncle Vernon. And once the king dies, Vernon takes over as Erewhon's second-in-command. And so he has kept Elite locked up in a tower, so she doesn't even know how to read or write or anything like that. He's kept her locked up in a tower and chained so that he can uh, basically control her lands that she's the rightful heir to. Sarah J. Moss has a weird thing about having protagonists who don't know how to read. Uh, it's a thing. Okay. So, I love a lead. She's plucky, she's disabled, and she is very, very smart. And she's she's nice, but she's not a fool, if that makes sense. And I really like that about her. Um, do you want to, is there anything else we want to say about this before we move to the synopsis of the next one? Um, I don't think so. Okay, so the next one opens with, uh, I believe, a lead is the first chapter of the next one, isn't she? I can't remember. I don't know. Early on, but a lead is met by Lorcan, who, oh, in the previous book, he, Aelin tricked him into thinking he had gotten away with a word key that he had gone to seek. He's trying to get, collect them to destroy them and protect Maeve from them because Maeve wants them and he is sure that this will lead to her doom. He has a very fucked up dynamic with Maeve that they get into in this book a lot in the seventh book, where essentially he is in love with her. She could not give more of a shit, like less of a shit about him. But he is basically like her. He is in charge because he is extremely powerful in a way that's very unique. He has like death magic, but like she's not attracted to him. He's in love with her. He is also like not very lovable. So he he's grumpy. Yes. He's incredibly violent. He's not particularly nice. He's just sort of an asshole. Like he's a bastard. Yes, but as far as his relationship with Maeve, he is he disobeys her orders, leaves so that he can get all the word keys and destroy them because he believes that Maeve would do something bad for him and he bad with them and he's trying to save her. So it's it's, a, it's like that very like toxic like um, I'm doing what she needs, not what she wants thing, which Maeve is a villain, so it's he is doing the right thing and stopping her from doing the wrong thing. But he thinks that he's basically like... His motivations are a little douchey. His motivation is basically, I'm going to do this, and then she'll have me executed because I disobeyed, but it's the right thing for her. Yeah. He has a terrible, terrible relationship with Maeve. Um, but he stumbles upon a lead, and these two are my favorite. 
Yes, Lorcan thinks he's being hunted by Morath when in actuality she's being hunted by Morath and he just happens to be following her so that's why he thinks he's being hunted. <laughs> and essentially they strike up a bargain where he he agrees to continue protecting her if she will help him map out the layout of Morath so that he can break into it. Yes. So come to find out Morath doesn't even have the word key he's looking for because she left with it. <laughs> yeah, so so they're both keeping secrets from each other. Um and Elite's walking like with a terrible limp. And so Lorcan will do things under the guise of it makes it easier for me. So he'll like brace her her leg or whatever. As a character, it is deeply funny to me to watch someone be just so apparently into someone just smitten and absolutely no no recognition of of the of the fact they're not even denying it to themselves it's they're oblivious absolutely and that's that's where we find lorkin Alid is smarter <laughs> Alid manages to impress him she so she is basically like an incredible con artist. Yes. She's extremely good at masking her emotions and acting and also like figuring out what people want to hear. And so she like early on, she shows this by she, uh, Manon gave her witch leathers when she escaped. So she pretends to be a witch who is hunting the lead rather than herself being a lead and manages to be convincing enough that she runs away if she escapes one of the Ilkin that are hunting her and the Ilkin are like these like demons they've been breeding at Morath. Mm. They're using witches to breed them. They actually no. We never find out what they're breeding with the witches because Caltane blows them up, but Elid says that it's not the Ilkin. Oh. The Ilkin were I must have missed it. Yeah. So I nothing ever comes of that, despite all the like I think they were trying to create pure baby vog, but like no, Caltane kills all of those. But the Ilkin no, you know what? I'm wrong. The it's the bloodhounds is what they're breeding with the witches yeah they're they've just got all sorts of weird like vaguely vogue monsters uh that they end up breeding i don't know uh the vogue are weirdly nebulous to me i really don't understand what they look like or what they're supposed to look like the yeah the what's funny is you don't have a reference for this because it's a Digimon thing, but I always picture the Ilkin as looking like Devimon from. Uh, it, he's basically like they're these tall, skinny. He's a tall, skinny vampire with wings. I'll, I'll send a picture, and this is what I think the Ilkin look like. You're sending me a bunch of pictures on this one. I gotta go through your notes after we finish these. Um, okay, so let's see. Oh, I don't have the picture from you. So, Lorcan and Elid go on their merry way. They're, um, at one point, they con their way into be, go, traveling with a carnival. Ooh. That's what I picture the Oaken to look like. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, they they have to cross a border or something and like a checkpoint and they need to be less suspicious of so their they con their way into going with a carnival 
basically Elite flashes a little bit of money, which Lorcan up to this point had no idea she had because she had been pretending she had no money. <laughs> She's hilariously good at being a con artist. Um, and so... He's constantly been caught off guard whenever she has to reveal a truth that he did not guess before. Yes. She just outsmarts him at every turn, and he is just this big old... He's not even a himbo, because he's not pleasant. He's just... He's just he big. Is a him- I think he's a himbo. He definitely matures into one, but he's not as smart as he thinks he is. He has very toxic traits, but I think the three... I think. The three basic uh, ingredients to being a himbo is a big, strong jock, which he has in, in spades. Yeah. Huge man. This man's like over seven feet tall, obviously. Dumb as a bag of fucking rocks. Is he over seven feet tall or the Fae that big? He is. He is big for the Fae. Okay. Well, he's demi Fae. Yeah, but he's still, he's still big for... Um... And the third one is respect women juice. He is as toxic as he is. The one thing is that he's very respectful of women. Yeah. I wouldn't even say, okay, this is, we're not going to get into a feminist deconstruction. I don't think he is necessarily all that respectful of women. He is respectful of women he likes because he says some very choice things about Aelin. <laughs> yes, but. She's annoying. <laughs> yes. Well, he, he, I would not say he's like super respectful of like all women or whatever, but I think he has enough respect for women. And I think we see him interacting with a lead who he very much has the himbo lady respect for. That's fair. Um, he's, he's one of those characters who like, he hates everybody, but her, that's the trope for them. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Oh, it's good stuff. They have all of the tropes of romance that I'd like. So it's the, um, like small, frail, but very whip smart, like sweetheart and the giant mean buff gruff with a heart of gold softy. But also they are like, forced to sleep in a tent together and they're like i'll sleep on the floor how dare you sleep on the floor you wouldn't sleep in the bed with me well you have to wash your clothes so you have to sleep naked tonight well if i'm sleeping naked then you're sleeping naked <laughs> uh this is for the next book but like uh or no this is for the final book but one of the most heartbreaking things is that sarah j moss gives us a lot of Rowan and Aelin sex scenes, and I find Rowan and Aelin somewhat milk toast. Like, they're not that great. This uh, we're coming up on one of my notes. If we can discuss it. Oh wait, wait, wait! No, I'm gonna read through your notes afterwards. I'm just saying, um, that what was I saying? Oh no, oh no. Well, I just they give they give. Lorcan and a lead, a fade to black. You don't get a sex scene between them ever. It's it is disappointing. I so my notes are not super funny this time. I they think aren't. Should... Which which let me see. I'll pull it up. Okay. So Scooter gave me notes. Some of them are funny, but I suspect 
the funny ones we'll do it's the first two and we'll do those when we get to tower of dawn so the note in question is the last one which is the just dominance one yes this series gives no respect to i said it in the first episode because my note was that fairy romance is um prejudiced against bottoms well and subs in general elite is a bottom that's why we don't get a sex scene is because a sex scene between Lorcan and the lead would not be two people fighting for dominance. It would be a Dom taking care of his sub, and she has no interest in writing that scene. She really doesn't. It's, it's, I, 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 we brought this up in the last one, but I think I, I codified it into a point that I think is what bothers me so much about it when I was listening to, uh, uh, Empire of Storms. And I'd said this to you, and you said, okay, you need to say that on the podcast. But it's, I think she likes to write dominant characters, and she writes them as if the thing a Dom needs, like a, the thing that a Dom really wants in their life, is someone who's just as dominant as they are. Yes. And, and so not, the story with that is is not Lorcan Elite, it's Manon and Dorian. Manon and Dorian, yes. I So I'm not a huge fan. I like them both and they have good conversations i think they're best in the last book but i'm not a huge fan of manon and dorian's relationship because manon is a dom she is a top she's 100 percent a top and all of her sex scenes are like it's the first time in her hundred years that she's ever let a man be on top and it's exactly what she's been looking for and it's like is it <laughs> she's like the ultimate like alpha like i don't know why she yeah. that's what manon is terrifying you would think that her perfect match would be someone who is like a sub for her, but in a way that she respects because she is a dom. Like it's it's the the whole fairy romance thing, and it's the the sex scenes that she likes to write and that we see versus the ones that we don't see is like someone who is the most dominant person they've ever known until they meet their one true love, a person who's a little bit more dominant than they are. And it's like, is that what a dom is looking for? I no, I think they're looking for a sub. A top is looking for a bottom. You have to like, I'm not like fully in the well, like opposites attract thing, but you have to have complementary stuff. You can't both be the same person. And that's like the hottest thing ever. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, I believe my actual response to you saying this was, yeah, she needs to peg him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had a thought, and I can't remember who it was, but I think there's a different character that I thought, oh, they would be perfect from Manon. I can't remember who it was. You know, whenever the... Um, whenever book four was happening before Lorcan and Elite meet... I thought a lead was the first time I read it. I thought they were Manon they were setting it up for Manon and a lead. They'd be a great pair. They well, lead's the only bottom. <laughs> but even, okay, even, I, even the way that she writes it, she, think, she writes it as like a lead is like such a bottom that she's actually secretly a top. A lead is a bit of a brat. Like if we were assigning these things, I think a lead would be a brat. Absolutely. I agree. I agree with you. But the way that Sarah J. Moss writes her is just like, oh, she makes herself so soft, soft and submissive and she does it so well that she's the one in control of the situation. And it's I know which is exactly what a brat does. Yes. That's why she doesn't write the sex scene with the lead. It's because she has no interest in that sexual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I think uh, Sarah J. Moss likes doms and just. 
it's a thing in all kinds of faith it's the exact same problem i have with uh the zodiac academy romances is yeah. everything is about dominance and everything is about fighting for control yes and whenever well you know what you know who the other one who i think she's more of a switch but lysandra yes because not to get too into like the dynamics of kink whatever your dynamic is live your life but like the reason everybody else has problems communicating is because nobody wants to fucking listen and nobody wants to show their cards because they're all goddamn doms. It's why I think 80, like up until book seven, when Aiden decides he's going to be like too much of an asshole, Aiden and Lysandra is such an interesting couple because I think they're both switches. Yeah. So they actually, we will get to Aiden. They actually match each other. We'll get to Adian. Um, in book five, he does. He th- those two fall in love, Adian and Lysandra. Uh, I, I know we sort of disagree on this when we come to book seven, but the thing that happens in book seven, and we'll talk about this more. You know, I'll, I'll save it. Bring up when we get to that. Let me bring up this point. Okay. But um, so anyway, that was with the Lorcan and the lead thing. That goes to the whole the dominance thing. The well, fairy thing. so Lorcan does all of these little things, talking about the obliviousness, but um. So, like, once a leads, he, he offers to kill people for her. And she's like, well, is it going to cost me anything? Because she's smart. <laughs> He's like, no, I'll do this one for free. Uh, <laughs> um, he, he, <laughs> the fucking carnival, the carnival. Let's talk about the carnival because I think it's very funny to me. Um, he is just casually throwing knives and some woman offers to buy his shirt. He makes extra money by selling, slowly selling his clothes during the show. So fucking sleazy. He basically just, he doesn't even have a performance. I think she says that he just oils himself up and he does the normal warm-ups that he would do before a fight. And he just but makes... he's so talented that it's not a big deal. No, it's that he's hot. Well, also that. But... They, uh, I think the, I forget, the woman who runs the carnival says to Elise, she goes, he could get up there and just sew a hole in a shirt and women would still flock to watch that show. Yeah, because he's just like giant and ripped and uh, grumpy. And like, what woman doesn't love that? Sorry, one of our dogs is being weird. She's not being, she's not being weird. She's just walking around. There's something about a dog just wandering around doing its own business that you can't help but just want to know what's going on in their head. It's like, where are you headed? Where did you just come from? (laughs) And you know what? She probably just got up to get a drink of water, and now she can't decide where she wants to lay back down. But it's so interesting. I'm happy that we went super into detail about the Elite and Lorcan storyline. I don't necessarily want to do that with everyone else's storyline. but No, no, no. These are my favorite, and I'm not done. Go for it. Okay, okay. So, you know, she's she slowly kind of sees how horrible Maeve is to him and tells him he's always got to play some Paranth if she can get Paranth back. And I thought that was really heartwarming because, I don't know. Well, and specifically, he knows that Maeve has probably, if not already, is going to put out a hit on him to have him killed. Like, he mm-hmm. will be sentenced to death for his mission. And... So not only is she saying you have a home here, she's like, if you come here, I will offer you my what protection I can. You will yeah. have a place in my court, and like I will give you whatever protection I can, as you know. Yeah. Oh. And the other thing, the other oblivious thing, because she, she is oblivious 
to his attraction to her in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, there's a very good scene. But she she is not oblivious to his attractiveness. Like she understands, but she's also a realist, like, you know. But at one point, th- this scene, this one always gets me. She finally starts eating enough that she can start having a period again. And so she's menstruating and she needs to stop for supplies. And that gets derailed with a whole thing. Uh, And they get back on the boat because they're on a boat down the river trying to go towards uh, Aelin, who's going to Ilway. Um, She's cut. (laughs) She starts her period and Lorcan cuts up his shirt. To give her, to give her menstrual pads. Yep, I, the scene I like with uh, she's not aware of his attraction to him is when he's doing the sword show and she's talking to the lady that runs the carnival. She's talking about how like every woman there, including her, really wants to sleep with him, and Elite feels this like overwhelming sense of like what she doesn't realize is jealousy where like she has feelings for him and does not want, you know, these other women to have him essentially, but she's having this quiet moment and the woman ends it by saying, you're lucky. He still looks at you the way that he does. And like, she just does not realize she did not realize until that moment that he looked at her that way. Yeah. And it's just, it's just this thing where it's like, everyone really wants him, but they all know that like he would never leave a lead for them. And she has no idea that he feels that way about her. Yeah. To be fair, he doesn't either. He's not very he pretends, smart. He pretends he doesn't, but he knows. I don't know. He seems to be, like, sort of in denial. But that, though, like, Alid, he's, like, a super hot dude. And I know Alid is kind of self-conscious about herself and her experiences and... um. It just doesn't occur to her that he would find her attractive. And so she doesn't notice when he sees the, like when, when he gives signs that he does. Something I like about Aline and her attractiveness. She's buxom. I find this is a thing in romance stuff, especially fantasy romance, is that when a woman is described as attractive, she is like a wifu. She is like real thin and so athletic and all this stuff. And like a lead's like a little thick. Yeah. A lead's a bit thick. Uses it to her advantage. And people like that about her. And Lorcan likes that about her. Yeah. Lorcan's into that. (laughs) Um, Hi, baby. I love you. He's not talking to me, y'all. I love you, but oh, you was your baby. He's talking to our oldest dog. She's a widow and wet. Is a brat. And has him wrapped around her little paw. This was, so those, this used to be my dog. For those of you who don't know, Sunny might as well be describing herself because I have a type. <laughs> you do love a short, fussy woman. Anyways, uh, she bullies him. Uh, <laughs> that is not a description of me. But uh, she does. She will definitely flip a water bowl if he is late feeding her. So that I think that's a lot of the fun stuff with Lorcan and Elite. It does end with them catching up with Aelin and it ends Yeah. Well, I don't know if we want to, because do we want to have the, the part where they all converge at once? Probably. I... 
because let's not go over all of that. Well, I, so I will say this. We're about an hour in already. God damn. We're through two books and like I'm not really even through the second book. And I know we're going to breeze through Tower of Dawn. I have some thoughts I want to talk about. It's most Tower of Dawn's going to be a lot of me ranting and Sunny going, this is why I don't read that book. But um, there's a lot that happens in this book. Not all of it is interesting. I think I'll give, I will do the Spark Notes version of the rest of it. I'm happy that we covered Lorcan and Lee in detail. But let me Spark Notes the rest of the book and then we'll talk about the final convergence. Okay. Okay, so next plot line, Manon. Manon is at Morath and has functionally decided, like at the end of the last book, she kind of learns what had happened to her second, who she had had a stillborn and was branded as unclean by Manon's grandmother and basically finds out that Manon's grandmother anytime, because it's a curse upon the Iron Teeth is that they have very difficult births and often give birth to stillborn children. And anytime that happens, she like brands them and exiles them. And Astrid managed to fight her way back. But like, Manon has essentially made up her mind that like, he's the wing leader because of the coven, but doesn't really, she hasn't made this decision yet, but basically knows that like her grandmother is not looking out for the witches. And so her storyline is essentially as she is, uh, ordered to sack uh, uh, Rifthold. Instead flies there, protects Dorian, helps him escape, kills a couple witches. As punishment, she is ordered to assassinate, or not assassinate, execute Astrin. Instead, she attacks her grandmother, gives the 13 time to escape. She gets very badly wounded. Abraxas carries her to Aelin. She recovers on the ship, has some sex with Dorian. The 13 eventually rejoin them. That's Benon's plot line. Uh, Aelin uh, starts this book meeting up with Darrow. Darrow. Well, a, a, like a handful of the lords from Terrison. And this is my least favorite scene in the whole series. Uh, she meets up with Darrow. Darrow commits an act of high treason for which his head should be removed. And that never happens. Uh, but he basically gives her a signed petition that says that, like, they do not recognize her as queen. And that how dare she fight to protect her homeland and destroy evil. She should just stop being a cunt and go fuck off and die. And so she's just like, okay. Exact words from Scooter here. That it's a direct quote. Basically, that scene in <laughs> fucking infuriates me. It's like, it's the, I, we're going to have a lot of comparisons, especially when we get to the last book between the series and the Lord of the Rings. But it's that, he's the Denethor. And he should fall off the top of a tower while on fire. Jesus Christ. But we okay. can't do that because he's gay. What? <laughs> well, I mean... You can't set gays on fire anymore, Sonny. I don't think it was ever appropriate to be setting people on fire. I, appropriate, no. But there was a time when it was considered acceptable. And I agree that we shouldn't do that. But Darrow really grinds my gears. <laughs> Scooter. I'm like a monster. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like a monster because you're saying monstrous things. So, but he basically, it's a petition that the, like a bunch of the lords make and like basically saying that they know that she was Otterland's assassin and that she, she is 
uh, doesn't care about Terrace and they don't recognize her as queen and she can't take her throne until they vote her back in. And it's like, sir, I don't think you know how fucking monarchies work. Like, and also, I'm sorry, let's catch you up on something. There's a demon who's trying to conquer the world and his only weakness is fire. And there's one person alive whose magic is fire and it's your fucking queen. <laughs> okay, so... He sort of sends her on her way and says, and she says, you know, when you need me, I'll be there. And she goes to raise armies. Yeah. So she's just like, okay, well, fuck you. I'm just going to fight this war on my own then. Get fucked. So she goes south to get uh, Skull's Bay because she basically, the pirates owe her. And she's like, I'm going to, I have this plan to unite the pirates. She gets down there. Uh, liberates their temple, uses that to talk to Brandon, gets some information. She has to go find a lock to put the keys in to send Arrowin back to his realm. Uh, she gets the pirates to fight with her. They have a big battle in Skull's Bay. Uh, Lysandra turns into a sea dragon, sinks a bunch of ships. It's the longest fight scene. It should be so cool, but they do the fight scene three times from three different perspectives. So, like, they'll do the whole thing from Aelin's perspective. She is like... An hour and a half of just fight scenes. It's a lot, and it's not even fight scenes. It's inner dialogue as fights happen around them. Because the whole Alien section is, I think, stupid. She uses the word key and accidentally allows the goddess Diana to come through a gate. Diana possesses her and then tries to use her fire to destroy Skull's Bay, which doesn't make a ton. They never really explain why Diana is such a dick, although. It's like one of my favorite parts in book seven is that when she has a chance to return the gods to their homeland, she decides to fuck them over because they're assholes and sends them all to hell instead. We're going to get to that. Anyway, but so Diana comes through and like uses her power and sets everything on fire that she shouldn't. And then we rewind. See the same scene from Lysandra's perspective as she's sinking boats and the fire happens. And we rewind again. It's the exact same scene from Adian's perspective while he's watching and trying to protect Lysandra. Anyway... They managed to win that battle, so Rolf, who's the leader of the pirates, it turns out he is part of a lost people named the Mycenaeans. Uh, and so he is going to go and bring the rest of the Mycenaeans out of hiding, unite the pirate fleets, and they're going to come be, he's going to be her armada. Cool. They go do that. Adian professes his love for Lysandra, says, bitch, I'm going to marry you someday. He basically does the Schmidt from New Girl. <laughs> where he puts the money in the jar and says, I'm going to marry that girl. Uh, <laughs> so then they go from Skull's Bay to, they're going to go to the marshes to find the lock. But the lock isn't there. They actually, the lock has already been used. They find a witch mirror that shows them how to build a new lock and explains that, like, they made a deal with the gods, essentially, where they were supposed to build a lock, send all the gods home, and in return, the gods would take Erewhon with them. But Elena stole the lock and locked up Erewhon, and now she agreed that her descendant would have to do it. So that's Aelin. Aelin has to kill herself to build the lock, and it'll send all the gods home. That's what they learn. Uh, while they're there, Maeve's fleet shows up. So now we have our second naval battle. Rowan managed to convince his whole family to turn against Maeve's fleet. Uh, they are joined. The, the Terrison's fleet is made up essentially of all the people from the Wastes, which... My next note, Ansel of Briarcliff has a very deep southern drawl, and she is from the western wastes, so why don't the rest of the witches, including Manon, also have a deep southern drawl? Why is it just Ansel? <laughs> I don't know. 
but I think this book would be way better if all the witches were Southern. Yeah, definitely. Just like, oh, because they've got the dragons. They're already horse girls. They're horse girls. They're catty. They do basically like voodoo. I'm just picture. I imagine just an old crone just saying, "Manana, are you gonna follow orders and be my wing leader, or are you gonna, are you gonna continue to be disobedient, to your witchling?" Like, <laughs> we could have had that. Anyway. Ansel Briarcliff shows up with a handful of ships. Them and the Whitethorns make up there, and they're doing this whole battle with Maeve, and they get rescued at the last minute by the Thirteen show up on their wyverns. The battle's actually a distraction. Maeve goes to shore to take a lead in order to lure Lorcan and her other generals away, and then after Manon and Aelin come out of the Witchmere, they're there, and they get captured by Maeve. Um, bum, bum. Is there any other plot lines I'm missing from that? Because... We don't do KL in this book. He's in the next one. Um, no, I think that's everything. So the thing with Lorcan in a lead is that Lorcan trying to protect it. What is it that he does? That He summons Maeve. He sends like a blast of power out to summon Maeve. And it's very specifically his power. Um, and we'll get to more of that, but he's the reason that it's so easy for Maeve to find them. But Maeve has already laid this trap. It's not really Lorcan's fault. Yes, and so I think Maeve severs the blood oath with him. Well, we hadn't gotten to that. Well, I guess in this plot line, Gavriel and Fenris are with them, mm-hmm. um, and they have been ordered by Maeve to kill Lorcan. Yes, and Gavriel has met Adian, who is his son. Yes, we missed that whole plot line. And Adian's like, fuck you, you're not my real dad. <laughs> he does. And then it's just a lot of like Gavriel being like, I've got you, son. I'm using a shield. And Adian going, fuck this bastard in a shield. I don't need a shield. Fuck this asshole. There is a lot of that. Adian is whinier than I remember him being, but we'll get to more of that later. But um, we should probably address the Adian Lysandra conversation. Yes, that's also in my notes. So Lysandra says, are you sure you want to be with me? I used to be an escort. I'm going to use the term escort. They, I believe, say courtesan. Yeah, they may, may say courtesan. It depends on who's talking, because they use the W word a lot. They say whore a lot. And she's basically like, are you sure you could love a whore? And he goes, uh, oh, you think you've slept with a lot of people? I'm bisexual. Well, <laughs> I've slept with so many people. And I understand that the tenor of this conversation is meant to be neither of these things are bad. It's okay to sleep with a lot of people. It's okay to be a sex worker. It's okay to be bisexual. But it's such a tired trope of the like, oh, you think you've slept with a lot of people. I'm bisexual. Yeah, it's not even a true trope. Both of us are bisexual and only one of us is a slut. We're very monogamous. Kitty bug, I love you. You're back. You're back. You're my Katie bug and you're back. What a good girl. This man complains about all the time that how long or how far we are into this and how far we haven't gotten. And yet, that dog hops up. He's going to baby talk that dog for an extended period of time. So, all right. So, we, that's, we finished Empire of Storms, right? Um, Lorcan in the lead. Yeah. So, at the end of. Empire Storms, Gavriel has been let go, 
his blood blood oath is severed. She keeps Fenris because Fenris is in like he doesn't want to serve her, uh, and she cut, severs uh, Lorkins as well. Mm-hmm. And Lorkin crawls, and it it pisses a lead off, understandably. Because it, it looks as if he is crawling towards Maeve. Yeah. Um, but he's actually crawling towards Aelin. Trying to rescue Aelin. Yeah, he's trying to save her um, from going with Maeve and Cairn, who is a new fae that's been added, who's just, like, incredibly sadistic. Um, and then... You and I were talking about this. I don't know if you want to talk about it whenever she gets there, because Elide is technically one of Aelin's subjects, but she's also under the domain of the Witch Kingdom. Oh, yeah. And then Lorcan also is a weird possessive asshole. So, like, after Elide gets... So, Lorcan has that hit on him. So, Gavriel and Fenris have orders to kill Lorcan. Right? Um, and they go to attack him, and the lead tries to intervene, gets hurt in the in the meantime. And so Aelin basically makes them uh, agree not to attack Lorcan because they're allies, and it's part of a peace treaty or something. She gives him a loophole. Um, so Lorcan doesn't want to give up a lead because she's injured, and then Manon's like, well, your claim's third, because she and Aelin have superior claims. (laughs) And it's just very funny. You had the joke about them being, oh, so it's my best friend. Everybody. It's like Aelin saying, everybody, this is my best friend to lead. And Manon going, excuse me, this is my best friend to lead. And Lorcan going, that's my wife you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Lorcan is very, very possessive. And they're like, who the fuck are you, man? (laughs) And meanwhile, meanwhile, she's like, I've been working so hard to get back to Aelin and to get back to Manon, and I really respect them both, but also, like, Lorcan might be my number one right now. Yeah, she wants Lorcan to be the one to carry her. It's very funny. Um, but by the end of the whole Maeve thing, they're not they're not friends anymore. I mean, Lorcan desperately wants to be her friend, but no. She's real mad at him. Real mad. All right, so is it time for Tower of Dawn? Yes. All right, so I'll be very brief with this. Kale, while happening concurrently but a little later than Empire of Storms, Kale is sent to the southern continent to, uh, it's an empire called the Cognate to try to uh, request reinforcements for the war. Also, they have the best healers, and they're going to see if they can heal his back. Uh, while he's there, he gets uh, stuck in their polity, you know, their political games and their machinations. There's uh, the youngest daughter recently died. The daughter just older than that was recently married. There's uh, a string of mysterious attacks in the court that they're trying to solve, all while trying to get healed by a woman named Irene, who is from Aurelia. And resents Otterlin and Kaol because Kaol was the captain of the guard for Otterlin. And so she thinks that he helped commit all the atrocities, including her mother was burned alive because she had healing magic. 
they fall in love, it's... I like it. I really like their romance. Kale and Irene are amazing together. Uh, she's too good for him. Well, yeah, but, like, she's also Irene. Like, she's too good for everybody. I will admit, the only thing I don't like about Irene is that she likes Kale. It's like a thing in the la- in the last book, too, when they all also meet Irene, where they're like, oh, well, Irene's better than all of us. None of us deserve Irene. Even Aelin's just like, no, I bet Irene. Irene's in charge here. Meanwhile, uh, another of the women who are too good for Kael, uh, Nezrin, who I guess we were introduced to in the fourth book. We didn't really talk about her. She is the new captain of the guard who took over after Kael. They had a fling between Kael's first girlfriend and Aelin. And uh, they're still kind of friends with benefits, but it's it's not very respectful. Kael only goes to her when he's needy and doesn't really care about like his sexual needs. It's just like, I'm sad, let's fuck. And Nesrin's like, we can be fuck buddies if you want to be fuck buddies, but you can't just be my friend when you're sad and ignore me when you're not sad. You have to be my friend all the time. So she goes on her own adventure because she's from the Southern Continent, her family is. And she falls in love with the Prince Sartak, who is sort of first in line to be uh, the next Kagan. The Kagan is like the Emperor. The way their political system works is that the Kagan will have a bunch of kids, and the kids will all compete, and then before their death, the Kagan will choose a successor. And so all of these kids have their own specialties. Uh Sartak is the leader of the Rukin, which is the Arrow Cavalry. His younger brother, Caution, is the leader of the land armies and the mounted cavalry. He's a horseman. Uh, is it, what's the sister's name? It's not, Borte is the Rukin sister, but it's, uh, I forget this. His sister is like uh, in charge of the Navy. She runs the ships. The eldest brother is the spy master. And then there are two daughters, one who was recently um, married in an arranged marriage, and the youngest who recently committed suicide, in air quotes, was pushed. And the only one who believes that she was murdered is Caution, because Caution liked the youngest sister and knew that she wouldn't kill herself. And so Caution comes to Kaol, who is an outsider, and says, you're the only one who's going to get this. I think she was murdered, and I want you to investigate. And Caution up front is like... He's like, I support the war effort. If it were up to me, we would go. But, like, I'm loyal to my father. So I have a lot to talk about here. So my first note, and I want you to read this one, Sonny. My first note from Tower of Dawn. It's the first note that's on that page. Oh, I know. Mm. Scooter's first note reads, Kaol is a dirty little pain pig. Yes, he is. So this is a, a, a fan theory of mine. The healing... It's an emotional wound, essentially. So the way the Vogue magic works is they get into your mind and torture you with memories. And so because Kaol is trying to hold off, at the end of book four, Kaol is holding off the king so that Aelin can free Dorian. He endures so much of this torture that it basically leaves an imprint on his spine that prevents him from walking. He's paralyzed. And so as Irene works on healing the wound... She all she says that he also has to confront the memories that he was tortured with and heal emotionally via therapy in order for her to be able to heal them physically. Kaol says, talking is for pussies. I'm a man. Give me a piece of leather to chew on instead. And she goes, it's going to make it 
hurt 10 times worse and take 10 times as long. And he's like, I'd rather do that than talk. And my theory is not that he is shut off emotionally, but that he's just a dirty little pain pig and he wants it to hurt. He's pretty emotionally shut off, but if, if that's what love, gives you your jollies. He would love nothing more than to talk about it, but Kale likes the pain. He's a dirty little pain piggy. Good God. The first time Kale and Irene have a love scene, Irene describes Kale's kissing as very thorough, which is sexy in its own way if you understand what she means, but it's also the perfect way to describe Kale's adequacy as a lover. Is that he kisses and he fucks like he's got a checklist. Like he's like, oh, I kiss here, then I kiss here, then I kiss here. And if I want to make sure that, you know, I've covered all my bases, I also kiss here and I kiss here. And she's like, man, have I been kissed thoroughly? <laughs> Something else I want to say. And this, they do sort of eventually get at this, but like part of this is, I think. She's struggling to, Sarah J. Moss, when I say she, she's struggling to reconcile good politics with the fact that all of the political structures in this book are monarchies, which are inherently bad politics. And there's a lot of examples of how forward-thinking the cognate is and how kind and generous and, like, how it's safe for women there and there's no slavery. But, like can't really seem to like write that well so much so that there's a lot of like inconsistencies where like so they the entire time cal's there they're constantly trashing him because otterlin has slavery and the cognate does not and the the cognate is very enlightened and otterlin are stuck in the past but otterlin has only had slavery for the reign of its current king and by the time they get there Slavery has been abolished by Dorian. So Otterlin had slavery for a period of maybe 20 years. The Cognate has had slavery for its entire history, and it was only banned, like, by the last Coggin. Like, the current Coggin's mother is the one who banned slavery. It's like the United States shaming, like, Cutter for having slaves. Like, yeah, they shouldn't have slaves. It's bad that they do. But you're the fucking United States. What are you talking about? You built your country on slavery. You can't high horse people. Yeah, you and I were talking about this. Uh, it was sort of a hypocritical thing from Irene, where Irene really hates Otterland because of what it did to Finn Harrow, where Irene is from. But she's constantly talking about how much better the Cognate is. And the Cognate is an empire. It It, it is... The product of imperialism. They have a long multicultural history that essentially ended with one of them conquering all the other ones. And they herald this as like a a good thing that should have happened and made the world better. And that's currently what Otterlin is trying to do. And they juxtapose these two together of like, ah, the cognate, the kind conquerors who brought enlightenment to the world. And Otterlin, who are basically nazis and it's like both nazis and you've only recently liberalized and that does not give you a right to lord yourselves as some sort of like enlightened people and i think it's like i think this is just a situation of she is trying to i think present an idea of like could we have a kingdom like because they have these conversations where like irene is sort of convinced 
of chaos goodness because he's like, well, no, I would want our kingdom to be like the cognate. We could have a court like this. We could have a land like this and a city like this. And they're forgetting that for like the longest time, the crown jewel of the entire world was Terrison. Mm-hmm. And like Terrison and Doranel were like centuries ahead of where the cognate is now. And were just sacked recently. Like Doranel was taken over by Maeve and Terrison was sacked by Otterland. And it's like, I don't know why you're holding up the cognate as like, oh, could we ever have this? And it's like, you used to until like 15 years ago. It's not that far-fetched. Yeah. Anyway, it's a thing that drives me nuts. But anyway, they figure out that um, Duke Parrington. So the Coggin keeps saying like, oh, maybe I'll side with Parrington. He actually sent wedding gifts for my daughter. The wedding gift he sent for the daughter was a silver band that was actually encasing a black band. So the daughter, Duva, is possessed by a Vogue and murdered the younger sister. It's There's a lot of hypocrisy here. Also, there's so many scenes where... And I think this is why the eldest brother does not get the throne. Sartak is given the throne. But the eldest brother is bragging about how good his spy network is. And everything he reports to Kaol is the lies that Parrington and Maeve are spreading. So yes. it's And so if you... I a lot of people read these books out of order. Some people read five and six simultaneously. Some people do six first because... You know, five leads into seven. If you've read five, you know that, like, Maeve has this tactic where she goes up the coast and burns a bunch of cities in Eelway to make it look like Aelin is doing it. Yes. We already know that Aelin has been putting out the fires and combating these rumors. And it's not like everyone actually thinks Aelin is doing this. But the the spies present this to Kale as like, oh, we hear the Queen of Terrison has been burning cities in Eelway. And it's like, oh, really? That's what you heard? You're like that reporter who just goes on Twitter and repeats like what The Rock says on Twitter and says that that's news. Like that's this extent of your spy mastery. They don't even know that Parrington's been dead for 20 years. Like they don't know about the Vogue. They don't know shit. And they're constantly trying to lord it over Kale. And Kale is meanwhile just being like, I know 10 times more than any of you, but I can't say anything because you're all a bunch of untrustworthy little nitwits and I can't trust you with this information because anytime someone gives you a piece of information, you just bring it to the table and start bragging about how much you know and I don't need to broadcast my shit. Oh yeah, I distinctly remember that speech. No, he basically does. And then Irene throws the princess in the pool. I think we we learn one real big thing in this book that I think is relevant for... The rest of the plot line, and that is that Maeve is a Vog. Chewing a pickle on Mike is gonna be. I gotta cut out so much of this. I'll just <laughs> mute my side of it. So, no, yeah, Maeve is a Vog. Not just a Vog. She's the Vog Queen. So the reason the Vog are here is because Maeve lived in a Hell World and decided, fuck that. And read a book about a world where grass was green and the sky was blue. So she came here and was like, oh, cool. I like it here. I like the Fae. I'm going to pretend to be the Fae. And I'm going to cast a spell that's going to convince everybody that I was the third sister to Mab and Mora. And she brought with her her servants, who are the Karen Kui, who are known as the Stygian Spiders. Although we find out in Book 7 that the Karen Kui are loyal to her and the Stygian Spiders are the spiders who are no longer loyal to her. Um... So they're also Valk, and she brings them over. And she was married to Erewhon's elder brother. And so they're like, it's basically a Helen of Troy situation where they're like, my wife ran away to Troy. We're going to go fuck him up. 
And that's how the war started. Is they followed Maeve over to try to bring her back, but they don't know that this Maeve is their queen. So they, Erewhon also thinks that Maeve is a fae, because he dumb. And the other big thing that we learn is um, that healing magic kills Vogue. Yes, the Vogue are a parasite. They don't have physical bodies, and because of that, they can be healed like an infection. Yes. And it is why Maeve, it's why Dornell has good healers, and it's why the Southern Continent has good healers, is because when the war happened with Erewhon, the Fae sent their healers to places off the main continent that Erewhon couldn't get to them. So they went to, they sent a bunch of their healers to the Southern Continent and set up the Tori Chesme and basically were like, we're going to plant a bloodline of healers here so that there will always be healers that mm-hmm. are raised here in case Erewhon ever comes back. And the same happened with Maeve and Dornell. She gathered up a bunch of healers and brought them to Dornell. Yes. Um, it's why she always has an owl next to her, because that's the sign of Silba. Yes, and she basically always has a healer on standby just in case she runs into a Valk. And the healers can basically burn the Valk out of a host. Yeah. So those are the two big things we learn. Kaol gets the Kaganate support. Uh, Irene and Kaol fall in love and get married. Oh, they get married. The, that book ends with them married and Irene pregnant. Oh, the other thing is the healing that they they can do. So Kaol can walk for certain amounts of time, but he's taking from Irene. They're oh. bonded in this way. What happens is, because I forgot that this is how it happened, she heals him completely and fully. Then they get into the final fight with the Vogue princess that's in Duva. Kaol jumps in the way of the shot, and it hits him in the spine, and basically, like, it's even worse than the first injury. So all of the healers of the Tori Chesme try to heal him at once, and it basically rips open a portal to Silba. And Silba's like, I can heal him, but it'll have a cost. And so Irene pays it, and the cost is that they were forever tethered. So essentially, he can walk perfectly fine as long as her magic is at full strength. And the more she uses her magic, the more his ability to walk deteriorates. And if either of them dies, the other will die. Yeah. So they decide, fuck it, let's get married. (laughs) Yeah. They get married, basically get pregnant right away. Because book seven starts with they're on a boat, and she's like, I've got a baby in me. She doesn't tell him, but he knows. He doesn't tell her that he knows. And then it goes like till halfway through the book before either of them tells the other that they both know that she's pregnant. Yeah. His chapters are far more tolerable after he marries Irene. Yeah, because his chapters are also Irene chapters. Yeah. And Irene's the best. Irene's great. I really like book six. I've joked a lot that book six is the best book. I think four is probably my favorite, but six is really great. There's a lot of stuff in six that can be infuriating, especially with the royal family. But like, Irene is great. I think their romance is really good. I think the mystery and like, there's a lot of good ooky spooky stuff in it. Uh, it's good. It's good stuff. It's lots of good stuff. Oh, and they find a shifter named Falcon who 20 years ago sold. 20 years of his life in exchange for some spider silk made a fortune turns out he was a shifter and so the interwoven web here is that he made a fortune but 
when he gave up his 20 years, he also gave up a substantial portion of his shifting power, which one of the Stygian spiders now had. That's the same Stygian spider that sold the silk to Manon, and is now after her because Manon stole it without giving anything back. And, to top this all off, one time he was in Rifthold, Bangalady got her pregnant. No, no, his not brother. His brother. His brother did that. Bangalady got her pregnant, so he is Lysandra's uncle. <laughs> Convoluted. Yes. And he randomly gets his powers back at one point because that spider attacks Manon and Manon just kills it. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, I got my powers back. That spider must have died. Also, I, I, 20 years younger all of a sudden. Oh, that spider. Because Manon kicks too much ass. Manon's so good. Manon rules. Okay, so book seven. There's a lot here. There's so much. It's basically the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, it's two towers in Return of the King put together. They have a Helm's Deep, including pulling down a dam to try to flood it. Yeah. And uh, then they have a Battle of Gondor. You know, big white city, Plenor Fields, Aerial Legions, all that stuff. Witch Towers. It's a whole thing. I don't know how much detail we want to get to book seven. It's a lot. Everything comes to an end. Nobody really dies except Gavriel in the 13. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Lead sends Lorcan out on the battlefield on one of them. And uh, says, you know, I don't care if you don't come back. But then he almost doesn't come back. And so she rides out on this satanic horse. Which, frankly... That was a little, little left me a little incredulous. That's Kale's horse, right? The one that's an the asshole. asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Um, uh, yeah. And so she she gets Lorcan onto this horse, and this is supposed to be an Arabian horse, like it, that's the parallel. And those are small horses, very like they have lots of endurance and stamina and they're like very cool horses i like them but they're they're on the smaller side so she is galloping this horse with giant fucking lorkin who has to be 350 like to be fair that is a plot point because the horse can't make it the horses can't carry the weight and so lorkin keeps begging her to throw him off the horse the horse still manages to gallop past like with Lorcan on him. He's a good boy. She's a mare. She she's a good girl. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Didn't like that. And then well, she actually I not to correct you about horse stuff. She is actually a hardier breed of horse because there are two kinds of horses that come from that continent. There's the super fancy, really fast ones, which is the one Aelin has that she's super proud of. His is a different breed, which are the hardier horses that carry a lot of weight and travel long distances through the desert. Yeah, no, I know. Those are... I promise you they're parallels for Arabians. I th I assumed the Asterians were parallels for Arabians. They're both parallels for just different used uses for Arabians, I think. But... No, so Arabian horses are endurance horses. Like, if you're going to do endurance rides, you want an Arabian. Was Hidalgo an Arabian? Hidalgo is a Mustang. Uh, and actually, those are second if you're doing distance. Those are kind of the, the number two that people kind of talk about. There's like a budget 
thing. Because... Oh, the number two I talked about. Ugh. Never mind. Okay, let's move forward from horse talk. Pop quiz, hotshot. What's the number two I talk about all the time? <laughs> it's poopy. Wiggle your eyebrows all you want. You love me. You love me so much. I do. <laughs> now it's on record. We're leaving that in. <laughs> Kingdom of Ash. There's so much to cover here. I, there's a lot of topics I want to talk about that are not like plot points. So Kingdom let's of start Ash. with your notes. Well, my last note here, and it's one that I want to talk about. It is the most serious note, and it's something that bothers me so goddamn much. So there's a, it's a small thing that bothers me, but in this instance, it becomes a big thing. It's this trope in like the fantasy, especially YA fantasy, where they can't use the real names for anything. So like in for instance, instead of Christmas or Yule, they call it Yulemas, stuff like that. In this book, they do not say battlefields. They, I think she's trying to make war sound like really terrifying and like, oh, it's about wholesale slaughter. So she refers to battlefields as killing fields so casually in the sense of like, oh, Aelin's good with a sword. This would be a good sword to use on a killing field. It'll be sentences like that. And they say killing field hundreds of times in these books. A killing field is a very specific thing. The, ki- the killing fields is a coin termed to describe the execution sites for the Cambodian genocide. It would be like if she referred to battlefields as holocausts. Yeah. It's like, oh, Rowan has participated in many a holocaust in his day. <laughs> yeah. No one I trust more than Gavriel on a holocaust. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's a bit yikes. I just assumed she did not know that. She may have, like, known it and just not made the connection. I'm sure. Most people, I think, have heard of the term the killing fields, and she maybe didn't know that, like, that's the only use of the term the killing fields. Yeah. It was invented by the Cambodian reporter who escaped the killing fields and then wrote the book The Killing Fields. Well, but yeah, she does that. I don't know about the Crescent City books, but she does it in the Court of Thorns and Roses books, too. All the killing fields? Yeah, I think so. Also, I don't know. We're going to do those next. We'll find out. Yeah. So, let's... There are a bunch of battles, you know. Um, Fenris gets, breaks his, his blood oath bond to Maeve. If you disobey the blood oath, the consequence is that the blood oath will kill you. So yeah. he disobeys it to protect Aelin. And the only way for him to live is that she gives him the blood oath to her, and his first command is to live. Yeah. So it basically reverses that effect, which seems like a pretty convenient loophole. As long as you got a buddy you don't mind being blood oath to. <laughs> seems like you could probably survive breaking the blood oath. Pretty easy. Well... There you have it. So now Fenris is on the team. The entire, well, not the entire squadre. Uh, so Fenris's brother, Connell, may forces him to kill himself. And then we just like vaguely hear about Vaughn. 
go, going off doing shit. Vaughn is with Gavriel and Fenris in book five, but they say that he's off scouting ahead and then never bring him up again. No, they split up and he went to scout in a different direction. Yeah, he just never He went back. and scouted in the areas he knew. <laughs> and he wasn't. Um, at this point, everybody, it's everybody, and Lorcan is very soon after because she says she can't trust Lorcan, and the only way she'll keep him around is if he takes the blood oath so that he knows that she'll never betray him. And so he does it because of a lead. Yeah. He's basically like, I will take the blood oath to you because I am a loyal to a lead and she's one of your subjects. Well, and she want, she tells him that he won't be allowed in the kingdom. He'll be banned from Terrison unless he takes the blood oath. Yeah, and so he can't he can't get a lead to forgive him if, <laughs> if he's not there. It's funny because there's a whole plot point about how she feels really guilty that she gave Rowan the blood oath before Adian, and she, she's like, all right, Adian will be the next one to get it, and Adian's like, no, I won't take the blood oath till we get to Terrison. And then they go several books without anybody getting the blood oath, and at the start of book seven, she gives it to like four people in like a handful of chapters. Yeah, she's just handing those things out like Pokemon cards. She's got business to handle, and she's sick of Adian shit. She can't wait around for him anymore. Speaking of sick of Adian shit, I think that's a scene we should probably talk about. Yeah. Yeah, this one is... So, the plan, the way... The reason Adian is mad is Lysandra takes on Aelin's form and pretends to be Aelin while Aelin's trapped by Maeve. An admittedly bad plan. And if... Aelin never gets free of Maeve. She has to um, pretend to be having sex with Rowan, who is now Aelin's husband, uh, but get knocked up by Adian so the baby looks like one of its parents is uh, an yeah. Ash River Galathinius. So Adian has been looped into this plan where he fathers a child without any of his like consent and he has to pretend like Aelin keeps making these plans that piss Adian off because she doesn't tell anybody about the plans ahead of time. And this is a particularly disgusting plan. It's a bad plan. It's not Yeah, like it, it's not even it amounts it it's sexual assault. It is sexual assault and it's also no one is convinced by this. They spend the entire se- second book just going everyone just going I don't think that's Aelin. She hasn't used fire at all. Yeah, it's it's not great. Um, so, yeah. It is, this results in his soldiers losing morale because she's pretending to be Aelin and marching with them, but when she fights, she fights in shifted form. So as far as the soldiers know, Aelin's not only not using her fire, but not fighting with the army. And so there, she's basically like sabotaging Aelin's reputation with the Bane. And yeah. he is losing his shit about this and everyone's dying. And so I think after the Witch Tower kills like 4,000 people. Or no, I can't remember the order of operations. It's They have a huge loss. And he basically picks her up and throws her out in the snow. Naked, well, she's naked, naked, yeah. I think, I contend that this is not something Adian would do. I think you disagree with me on that. I do disagree with you because Adian is not as steady as like the other men in like the other male love interests in this book. I agree with that. I think the reason why I don't think Adian would do it 
is that I think going back to the whole Dom sub thing and Aiden and Lysandra being switches, I think he is the most he's the least like alpha I think and he still has some alpha bullshit but like this is I think this is kind of an egregiously like gross scene I think you and I both agree with that yeah know that it needs to be in the book especially because it they end up together anyway they end up getting married and it's I I think just my perspective is they're basically sexually assaulting him or he's responsible for the kingdoms kind of coming into into turmoil like I think it's a justifiable reaction to be that pissed. Like, it's not okay that he did that, but I could see being that angry. Yes. I think my problem with the scene is it makes him and Lysandra both look bad. One, it's a bad plan that Lysandra and Aelin have, and it's it does not work out well. Two, obviously it makes him look bad because that's like... He essentially is in a very justifiable position with his anger, and he takes it so much farther than it needs to go with his reaction to her. But it's also like him throwing her out on the snow, I would say is arguably like on par with her plotting to like rape him for a baby and pretend to raise it with a woman she does not love. Like, they're pretty bad things. And then when he saves her, when she decides she's going to march out as Aelin and fight with a sword, she gets attacked, he comes and saves her. And then she's like, uh, no, it's bullshit that like I had to almost die for you to realize that you loved me. And it's like, well, that's not strictly true. He already confessed to you that he loves you. He's just mad at you because you did some bullshit. And like, I understand that you're mad at him too, but like it makes both of them look petty. His reaction is not appropriate. Her reaction to him saving her is not appropriate. And it's a moment that I feel like is a little out of character for both of them. And I, I agree with you that I think it does make sense, but it's, I think it just bums me out too much. Maybe it is a real bummer plot line, but, uh, I, I just, I get it. Yeah. I'd be pissed too. If you were her or him, him, I agree. Well, I think it's unfair that she tells him that, like, despite being Arab and Hamel's sex slave for a decade, uh, she's never felt as used as when she was thrown out of the tent naked. And it's like, I don't know if public nudity is comparable to 10 years of sex slavery. I think, yeah, I don't know. I like, it was an ugly scene. It was real ugly. I didn't like it. And it kind of, for me, just ruined the Adian Lysandra. They don't get over it until the very end. Yeah. And it's it's it never feels right again. Yeah. It's not great. And I like them as a couple. I really like their dynamic. I think it's a fucking bummer. Yeah. We've got the battles. She finally reunites with the army and the gangs all together again. Yeah. Um... Just a short snippets. Uh, Manon goes and rallies all the Krakens. She's named Queen of All Witches. Yeah. Uh, shows up with an army of Krakens to end the 13 to combat the Iron Teeth. And they're joined by, I believe, Petra. Petra's Blue Bloods. Yeah, also. Petra's uh, 
so all of the blue bloods. But I think the yellow legs are just sort of the the riffraff, and they never get a redemption arc. Um, and I think some of the iron beef. Black beaks? Yeah, the black beaks. Sorry. Yeah. They don't go into a ton of detail. The big shift is that the blue bloods join them. Yeah. Begin at, at with Petra at, at the head. Mm-hmm. And she gets her revenge on Iskra. Yeah. She kills Iskra and Iskra's dragon. Oh, we find out that Astrin's dragon and Abraxas are mates. Are mates, yeah. Does, um, does Astrin's wyvern live? I don't remember. Because I remember they all get shot down, and then they all on foot go and blow up the tower. Um, then I think maybe. I don't remember. I don't remember being upset that uh, Abraxos lost his mate, so I don't think so. Yeah, I don't I think don't... they died. Well, I also think I think they mentioned something about someone riding Astron's mount later at some point, but I can't remember who. Anyway, um, so th- yeah, that's the plotline with Manon. Dorian goes to, un- Dorian figures out that he can also shapeshift like Lysandra can, because he has raw magic. He can do anything that someone with magic can do. So he learns how to shapeshift, uh, infiltrates Morath, and has a buddy cop romp with Maeve. <laughs> where he and Maeve are trying to get the last key from Erewhon, and he manages to get the last key and escape, uh, and kind of finds out that Maeve has allied with Erewhon because um, Rowan has convinced Rowan, uh, sorry, Aelin sent letters to uh, the Whitethorns and the rest of Dornell explaining that Maeve is a Vogue, so she's not the rightful heir to Dornell, so they overthrow her and kick her out of Dornell. Mm-hmm. So she's like, I well, will... and Rowan's cousin becomes queen. Yes, and uh, so she goes to Erewhon. Maeve goes to Erewhon and is like, uh, "I still have my magic to open portals. I will bring the Harenkui over from the southern continent, and I'll, I'll bring my spiders, and you can put the Vogue princesses in them, and so they become like a big bad in the final battle and all that shit." And... So they get together. Dorian and her forge the lock. It was Dorian and Aelin. Dorian and Aelin. It was prophesied that Aelin would have to basically give all of her life in order for the lock to be forged. They decide to share the burden in order to spare her life. And on top of that, once they open the rift, Dorian's father shows up, takes Dorian's place, and uses enough of his magic that it spares Aelin. And then Aelin confronts the gods and is like uh i'll make a deal with you because they have figured out that it's it might be possible for irene to just kill flat out kill erewhon they don't need to send him back so she's like if you save elena let elena go to heaven we will keep i'll send you back and we'll keep erewhon here and so they're like go fuck yourself they kill elena they destroy her spirit so that she just never gets to go to the afterlife it's brutal Gods are dicks. And then they go, we're leaving and we're not taking Erewhon, so you get nothing. And so Aelin's like, okay, go fuck yourself. So when the portal opens to their realm, she opens a portal in their realm to hell and sends them all to hell instead. <laughs> yeah, and then she falls through a bunch of realms. We see like um, a peekaboo thing of... Uh, a Court of Thorn and Roses. Yeah, of, yeah, of Court of Thorn and Roses. We won't say the couple names... Uh, in case you're, you have not read these, and um, she 
so she uses all of her fire magic to do that although when she comes back she has a little bit of fire magic left because mala who was the only god who was nice gives her a little bit mm-hmm. and so she comes back with enough magic to open portals because while she's in there all of Maeve's, all the cadre are taking on Maeve, and Maeve has them trapped in a nightmare. And she comes and, like, opens up. She uses the last of her fire magic to, like, open portals or something to free them from their nightmares, and they all kill Maeve. Yeah. And she frees Lorcan, and Lorcan kills Maeve, I believe. Well, no, Maeve gets the ring on her. Oh, yes. They put uh, Silva's ring on her. Mm-hmm. And the Stygian spiders kill her. That's what it was. Okay. And uh, they trap Erewhon. Irene disintegrates him, basically. Uh, Darrow apologizes, recognizes uh, Lysandra as the lady of a new territory called Kara There. Yeah, because he was charmed by, like, this little orphan girl that Lysandra marred to take on her indenture and uh yes evangeline evangeline so she leaves evangeline in darrow's care and evangeline charms him and darrow names evangeline as his heir recognize and so i think the reason she's given those lands is there's no use for them because they're infested with um ghost leopards but she likes to shift into a ghost leopard yes so she can live there so she gets her lands granted darrow names evangeline his heir they all go and give flowers at the site of where the 13 sacrificed themselves and the king's bloom blooms and yeah so it's king's flame the king's flame only blooms when a true heir has ascended to the throne of terrison and the last king who was darrow's lover and aelin's great uncle only one flower ever bloomed during his reign and he like pressed it between glass and like kept it and it was like oh a king's flame bloomed and when she is uh, when they win the battle like a whole field erupts in king's flame and it's like yeah yeah she was she's the fucking queen she had the fire like this is why darrow should be thrown off the tower <laughs> so um also with the death of the 13 um and the flowers the witch kingdom's curse is broken yes um so she's queen of the witches and she agrees to co-rule the waste with ansela briarcliff yeah so uh gavriel sacrifices himself to hold the gates while they take out Erewhon. Once Erewhon and Maeve are both dead, all the rest of the Volk just die, you know, like Sauron style. Yeah. It was kind of an underwhelming ending to me. I'm fine with the ending. I I don't have a problem with the happily ever after. I think that's fine. Yeah, I don't either. It's just sort of, um, it's a little fan service-y almost. Which, I get it, romance often is. I also, I think I'm with you because we talked about this. Um, you thought the book would be better if she died, like she was prophesized to. Yeah. I think they didn't need the prophecy anyway. I, I don't like a prophecy in general. And I also forget that when she loses her fire magic, she gains immortality. 
so her and Rowan essentially become an immortal king and queen, and like that's very convenient. I get that. I guess this is one of those series where I find the support cast more interesting than the main characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Oh, that's the thing. Lorcan binds his life to uh, a lead, so he dies when she does. Yeah. So he, he gives up immortality for a lead. Because he's a sweet boy. He is a very sweet boy. So I don't know. Are you excited to be done? I kind of am. I think so. It's a long series, and we split it up into two. And I think going forward, Court of Thorn and Roses we've done before, but... There's only three of the, in the first half of the series. Only three of them. We're going to do them all at once. I have not done Silver Flame yet, so that will be new to me. Mm-hmm. And we'll do that on its own. And then the Crescent City books, we'll do each of those on their own. And so I think it'll be a slower pace. We won't have to be burning through a bunch of books all the time and they're also books we haven't done before so it won't it won't drag as much i'm excited about that yeah 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 it'll be good to get through them and kind of be ready to be done absolutely all right i mean that's that basically covers it yeah Is there anything else you want to talk about vis-a-vis throwing a glass um, I would just like to uh, restate my con- complaint that uh, we got a whole bunch of milk toast sex scenes from Rowan and Aelin and not a single one from Lorcan and Elide. It is a shame. It's tragic. It's tragic. Sarah J. Moss, please hear this. Also, we need some appreciation. <laughs> to have several shapeshifters in your book and not have any kind of kinginess with that is a, a shame. Lysandra Tragic. could turn... You know what they should have done? You know what they should have done? So he throws her out in the snow. Then he goes and saves her. And she, what she should have said is like, okay, I get that you love me. I understand what I did was wrong. But things still feel off between us. I know how to fix it. And then she shapeshifts into Adian and hits him from the back. And she's like, you let me do that? And we're good. And then you have somebody. That. Somebody has to have written that fan fiction. Oh, I'm sure they have. You know what she should have done? She should have shapeshifted into Gavriel and like forced him to talk about his feelings. She mostly just turns into a leopard a bunch. <laughs> so much you could do with a shapeshifter. What in the in the entire time that they're married for the rest of their lives? Do you think that they ever have sex with her shifted? Because we know that like she doesn't look like how the the natural look, her like default look, is not how she looks. She got stuck in a body that wasn't hers when magic went and forgot what she looked like. So it's fair game for her to look any way she wants. Do you think that they ever had sex with her shifted out of the, her standard Lysandra look? I'm sure. What do you think is the freakiest thing they ever did? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't given it much thought. <laughs> You could turn into all kinds of stuff. No. Uh-uh. We won't no, get into anything. I draw the line. No, no, no. I know, no, no. I know. I know. We're not going to get into that. But, like, I don't know. What do you, th- how do you, how far do you think they went? <laughs> what if he's a furry? She could make that happen for him. Oh, 
<laughs> she could turn into like Lola Bunny. Scooter. Do you think they, they ever had sex with her turned into Lola Bunny? No, I don't <laughs> think so. Oh my god. What about the fox from the Disney's Robin Hood? Scooter. Do you think she ever topped him in a shifted form? Here's okay. Here's my question: Do you think, do you think she ever shapeshifted in the Lorcan, and then he dressed up as a lead and pretended to be, and was like, "Oh, Lorcan," and then he was, she's just like, yeah, and then just gives it to him. And do you think other people know that they do stuff like that, and it's real awkward anytime they hang out? Where like they'll be hanging out with some other couple, and that couple will just have a sweet moment. It's like, "Oh, I love you, sugar bear." When they do a kiss, and then they turn and they see Aiden and Lysandra just like grinning at them with like eyebrows, and be like, "Oh God, they're gonna fuck as us later, aren't they?" <laughs> I don't know what derailed us into this, but it's unhinged. I'm just saying. I do think it would make it awkward. The books would have been way naughtier if they had some of this stuff in it. I wanted, oh, no. you know what I, I, I know we talked about how it kind of drags and it got long, but I would not have minded a um, Rise of the Elyri style, like full epilogue book of just what they got up to afterwards in peacetime. And like, we could get a Lorcan and a lead sex chapter and we, you know, we can have all this kind of freaky nonsense. That would have been a better novella than the prequel novella. Yeah, the prequel novella was dumb. We could have like uh, uh, more Manon and Dorian stuff. Because they get weird and kinky. We could have Manon fighting herself like a sweet little bottom boy. Just a sweet little bottom boy. Just like a little, like a little cutie pie with like some juicy cheeks. Scooter, behave. This is we're, this, we're talking smut, and don't think it's getting any. But Quarterthorn Rose is way smuttier than this. We're gonna have to talk about this. I'm trying to get you ready for it. So I don't know if you're ready for it. <laughs> you're very, you're very chaste and vanilla, and I'm a dirty little freak. Uh, somebody, uh, somebody texted me that they laughed out loud whenever you, uh, in the first episode, called yourself a sweet little vanilla boy. <laughs> I am a sweet little vanilla boy. <laughs> the truth is, I'm the vanilla boy, and Sonny's the dirty little freak. Oh. I'm allowed to say that. You said one of us was a slut earlier, and they know it's not me. <laughs> so I'm a very upstanding citizen, and I don't participate in activities like that. I'm a degenerate. That's okay. My wife and I only make love missionary style and only to celebrate our relationship with the Lord on Sundays. I feel like that's weirder than being a freak. If we only had sex for Jesus? <laughs> Once a week for Jesus, one position. <laughs> yeah. Which is weird because like, there are couples that are like that. There's like religious couples where they only have sex missionary style because you know Jesus loved it, doggy. <laughs> you don't think they did some weird stuff? The man was a carpenter. He's he's like the line cook of his day. You know that like <laughs> if he was not the son of God, he would have had like knuckle tats and would have been smoking a cigarette constantly. Oh, line cooks. All right. <laughs> Anything else we got to add on this book? <laughs> we we done with this series? 
Um, I think that's it. I think that's it. We're going to move on to just normal show business. We've got to do our regular PSA corner. All right. As always, you know, keep an eye on the environment. Take care of the environment. It's important for your local apex predators. I hope you've gone out and looked and found out what yours is. Don't pet one. Don't do that. <laughs> do not pet them. A smaller predator, maybe. Got bobcats? Don't pet a bobcat. Don't, don't. They're, too, they're too vicious. Yeah, don't do that. But like, Do not pet wildlife. Appreciate from afar. That's a good message. What's another? We so we had well, the PSA from earlier was be respectful in your fandom. Don't cross those lines, and obviously always take care of your local apex predator. Okay. Um, here's my PSA. <clears throat> when you are gardening this spring, I know it's it's not happening yet, but when you're gardening this spring, make sure what you're putting into the ground is non-invasive. Do we have any other podcast business we got to cover? So this is the book episode, which means we need to... Oh, shit. Uh-oh. We do actually know what we do. We figured it out. We do know. So this is the last episode of <laughs> September, so we need to tell you what the schedule for August is. We're going to do our first... Uh, I'm going to say our first movie in theaters, but we're going to see it in theaters because we're recording this back in August. So the October schedule. The, it's going to be spooky month. The October movie... Is going to be the Meg 2. Scooter's taking me to the drive-in. He's going to buy me a milkshake. We're going to have milkshakes and blankies. And we're going to watch the Meg 2 at the drive-in. Yeah. So, October 5th, the Meg 2. I think it's called the Meg 2 Trenchia or something like that. Get trenched. <laughs> I think it's just Mariana's Trench. I think it's just called the, I think it's just called Meg 2 colon the Trench. Oh, okay. I don't know. October 5th, The Meg 2, The Trench. Uh, October 15th, our TV show. Uh, I believe Sonny picked this one out. We're going to do Wednesday, the first season of Wednesday, which I think came out last year. I don't think the We've second season We've already seen it, and I really love it. I like it. It's a good mystery. But we're going to rewatch it. We're going to rewatch it. And then for the book, it will be. Uh, Court of Thorns and Roses. Uh, books. A Court of Wings and Ruin. So a Court of Wings and Ruin. So that's, that's, our, that's our schedule for October. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Are you excited about it? Pretty excited about it. Um, I am super glad to be done with Throne of Glass. Uh, I like A Court of Thorns and Roses a little bit, uh, a little bit better. I like Throne of Glass more than you do. So I, I, it's le- it was less of a drag for me. But um, we'll see. I have not done A Court of Thorn and Roses in a long time. That's one of the first series we did together. And so I remember very little of it. But I'm excited to revisit it. Yeah, it is more of a romance uh, novel. And I like romance novels. Way more way more sex in it, too, if I remember. There's, a, there's significantly more sex. Well, I guess, like, in the in terms of how many times, maybe not. But definitely... Much more explicit descriptions of penises. Well, n- not even that, but like for the size of the series, how much sex happens is more frequent. Um, so, yeah, then we'll be moving into that and, and then a court of silver flames after that. So we're going to kind of get closer to our romance roots that we, we kind of stick to. Although I am reading a spooky book right now. But anyways... Um, 
And then I don't know if Crescent City is more romance novel or more like Throne of Glass. I know it's urban fantasy and it's also, um, well, it's sort of urban fantasy, but it's also, I've only read the first book and you can never trust the first book in a Sarah J. Moss series. So I don't know. But after that, after we're done with the season of Living Moss, we will be doing uh, more romance novels, just straight up romance. Yeah, we're going to have, it'll, it'll feel like I think a hard left turn. We're going to have some more contemporary romance for sure, much less fantasy aspects. Uh, we're also going to have, I think, April. We'll get into more details when we get to it, but April's going to be our switcheroo month where Sonny picks the movie and I pick the book. Yeah, that's not going to be a romance novel. Maybe. I, yeah. I figured out the book, but we'll yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do for a movie for you. Uh, I feel like you've seen everything that I like. You've told me the movie that you wanted to do for it, but I don't know if we've changed since then. I've, I've come up with like three of them and then kind of dropped them. Fair enough. Have you seen Steel Magnolias? Uh, yeah. Huh. It's the one where she drinks the juice, right? You don't remember it very well? I, yes, I remember it very well. I know it's Neil Magnolia's spot. <laughs> it's a wedding and diabetes. She dies because she's not supposed to have kids because of her diabetes, but she wants one, yeah. Mm. I think you had thrown... I think the one you had settled on, I don't know if you've changed your mind since then, but was uh, Empire Record. Oh, yeah. I did, huh? You've seen Empire Records, though. There's not going to be a lot that I haven't seen. I know. But I like Empire Records, and you don't. I don't. I certainly don't like it as much as you. I think it's a cute movie. Yeah. You could hear us talk about that in April. Maybe. Maybe. It could be something else. It could be like a... I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. We'll think about it. Okay. Well, thank y'all for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And, uh, you know, there's going to be some gaps here because we've recorded this out of order. So the last one we recorded was the Speed episode, which is not the last one you've heard. So in the, in Speed, we changed our stinger, our tagline at the end of the episodes. And uh, so you would have heard the old one at the end of the Deadlock episode. But our new uh, podcast sign-off is... As always, this one goes out to the himbos, the bimbos, and the thembos. We love all of you.